Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and we have Marcus Gibson back with us today as we begin our journey through the Platonic Dialogues in earnest. Marcus is a John and Daria Berry postdoctoral research fellow here at Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions and the executive director of the brand new Princeton Initiative in Catholic Thought. He received his bachelor's degree in philosophy and ancient Greek from Duke University, graduating summa cum laude, and his master's and PhD from the program in classical philosophy in the Department of Philosophy here at Princeton. He's taught courses in ancient philosophy at Princeton and Rutgers universities and joins us today to discuss Plato's Apology of Socrates. Marcus Gibson, welcome back to Madison's Notes. Thank you, Nino. It's exciting to be back. It is exciting. And for those tuning in, here's the plan. And please bear with us as we work out the kinks in these episodes on the dialogues. We're going to start at 30,000 feet, situate the dialogue, give an overview of the plot, discuss some of the general themes, and then head into the weeds where I will get tangled and Marcus will come to our rescue with a weed whacker. So Marcus, let's set the stage. The Apology of Socrates by Plato. What can you tell us about where this dialogue fits in the Platonic canon? What do we know about when it was written? Sure. So uh, the Apology is certainly a foundational text in, in the Platonic canon, uh, probably the most famous uh, of Plato's writings, maybe rivaled only by the Republic. Uh, and it's almost certainly one of the very earliest writings that Plato would have published uh, among mm-hmm. the dialogues. So it belongs to this tetralogy, this collection of four dialogues, uh, which purport to narrate um, some of the last days of Socrates and some of the most philosophically uh, and ethically significant uh, last conversations that Socrates took part in in his last days. So that tetralogy is comprised of the Euthyphro, the Apology, the Crito, and the Phaedo. And it's no accident that this is a collection of four dialogues. Um, To a contemporary of Plato's, uh, they would have been thinking, when they think of tetralogies, they would be thinking of of the tragic festivals in which uh, a playwright, a tragedian, would present a trilogy of tragedies all around some unifying series of events or a set of figures, followed by a satyr play. Uh, And of course, we shouldn't press this analogy too far because if you try to you know, connect the dots there, I don't think there's anything satirical about the Phaedo when, when Socrates <laughs> is arguing about the immortality of the soul with his cup of hemlock in hand. But nonetheless, I think Plato's being very deliberate when he presents these last events in Socrates' life in, in tragic terms. Now, the apology then uh, among these is, is, of course, the dialogue that purports to uh, recount some version of uh, Socrates' defense speech at his trial, right? So the Euthyphro takes place in the days immediately prior. Uh, Socrates gets involved in this conversation around the nature of piety mm-hmm. in the days just before 
his trial. Of course, that's going to loom large, given that part of what's at stake is whether Socrates himself is guilty of a form of impiety. We'll get we'll get to that more shortly. Um, then the apology itself. Then the Crito uh, concerns an incident where one of Socrates' associates attempts to uh, persuade Socrates to flee, not to face the punishment that the Athenians have have. Uh, decided to inflict upon him. And then, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Phaedo, of course, concerning the immortality of the soul and, and the very last moments of Socrates' life surrounded by some of his uh, students and associates. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Did you have something else to add? I was going to delve into the apology, but we can certainly first, uh, if you'd well, like let's, to. Let's, let's do that. Um, you already tipped your hand a little bit. It's a trial. We're here. We're in Athens. There's a trial. Could you give us a brief plot summary? Sure, yeah. Well, first, one quick word for our listeners who may find this helpful. Apology, of course. Socrates isn't apologizing for anything in the modern sense. Apologia, from the Greek, uh, we have logos, of course, a discourse or a speech, and apos, the preposition, which means away from. So you, you can think of, it's a defense speech. It's, it's a piece of discourse you use to ward away the accusations. You're getting, uh, you're trying to ward off uh, what you've been accused of. That's the apology. That's that's Socrates' defense speech. So, in brief, we can uh, divide up the the dialogue. It's as you and I were saying just a second ago before we began. You know, it's not much of a dialogue. It's right. it's almost entirely Socrates' own words, right? Um, but we can divide it up into Socrates' initial defense of himself, answering the charges. Socrates has been accused of first uh, disregarding the gods, a form of impiety. He's not paid heed to the gods. He's not uh, regarded the gods of Athens in the appropriate way. Um, and secondly, he's corrupted the youth of Athens as well. So in this initial part of uh, the discourse, Socrates responds to these two accusations. And we can sum up the way Socrates responds by uh, in following terms. Uh, Socrates claims for himself a kind of divine warrant in, the, in his way of life, his, his mode of philosophical examination in which he um, seeks out those who claim to have a kind of knowledge, a kind of practical knowledge or wisdom. He, of course, cross-examines them and exposes them time and again as lacking the knowledge they suppose themselves to have. This procedure, which aims at attaining ultimately a kind of wisdom that we can guide ourselves by in life, individually and communally, Socrates claims to have the sanction of Apollo. Mm -hmm. uh, and he does this uh, in terms of this famous origin story he gives us in which his uh, longtime associate Chirophon goes to the Delphic Oracle and asks the Delphic Oracle whether there is a man who is wiser than Socrates. Famously, the Delphic Oracle responds, no, there is no man wiser than Socrates. Socrates then, in seeking to understand the message of the Oracle by examining his fellow Athenians, initially to try to find someone who is indeed wise and therefore wiser than himself, um, Socrates comes, of course, to discover time and again that you know, this search is coming up dry again and again. And therefore, Socrates comes to recognize that perhaps this message from the oracle is a kind of mission. It's a kind of sending of Socrates to his fellow Athenians to try to turn them back around towards the pursuit of 
wisdom as something which is vital for the welfare of, of the Athenian community. So in, though, in that way, Socrates disarms both accusations at a single stroke. Hmm. Far from being impious, Socrates is actually the Athenian who uniquely best regards the wishes of the gods. And far from corrupting the youth, Socrates is in fact the one who most of all has the best interest of the Athenian youth and especially the elite, Athen the, the leadership, the Athenian leadership of tomorrow. He's the one who has their interest best at heart uh, because he's reminding them again and again not to get too distracted by wealth, health, pleasure, popularity and the like, but always to remember that the, the fundamental pursuit has to be the pursuit of wisdom. So this is all, if you like, the meat of Socrates' uh, initial defense speech, and we can certainly get into the finer details uh, shortly. After this, then, the jury decides whether or not Socrates, in fact, is guilty of these charges. And of course, the jury decides that he is guilty by a narrower margin than you might expect. So Socrates remarks about this. But despite the split, the, it does come out slightly in greater favor of Socrates' guilt after which Socrates is invited to plea for a sentence. And Socrates, in a humorous moment, uh, decides that rather than being uh, punished with death for, in response to these charges, Socrates claims he should be rewarded with uh, free meals for life at the Prytaneum. So what he's saying is, I'm at, what you claim I'm guilty of is in fact, at least as great a public service as say, what. A victor, an Athenian victor at the Olympics uh, has accomplished. You know, this is a great act of public service I've done for you. Socrates is sticking to his guns. Um, and then in the final part of the apology, uh, of course, the jury does not uh, decide to award Socrates with free meals for life, uh, nor are they willing, as Socrates also suggests, to simply, you know, uh, slap him on the wrist with a fee, a small fee. No, they, they do go through with the, uh, the capital sentence and Socrates wraps up his remarks by once again sticking to his guns, claiming that he won't flag in the face of death, uh, reasserting his conviction that it's better to stick to the path he's on than to abandon it in order to cling to some last years of his life. Um, he finally, as you and I were saying before we began, you know, uh, has this beautiful remark in which he, he bids farewell to his fellow citizens by observing that they go on to live and he goes on to die, but which of the two goes on to the better fate, only the God knows. So there again, resting in a kind of Socratic disavowal of knowledge, but nonetheless, one that has lurking behind it a pretty profound conviction. And maybe we'll talk more about this uh, later on in our conversation. There is this abiding confidence in what Socrates is up to, which maybe is at least in tension with that famous Socratic uh, disavowal of knowledge. He's confident that he's sticking to what the, the Delphic Oracle and what Apollo himself has wished for him to do. And therefore he's, he proceeds to his death with a kind of confidence, not, not a lack of, he proceeds to it without, without a split mind, if you like, with, yeah. a, with a pretty firm hope that he's, he's sticking to the right course of action. Yeah. I'm tempted to ask whether that firm state of mind is maintained throughout the rest of these four dialogues that tell the story of his trial and death. But 
we'll have to save that for for another time. And let, let me ask you this, because you've mentioned this is a trial and you've mentioned what Socrates has been accused of. But who are these people bringing the charges against him? So three accusers are named and we can talk a bit about each of them. Uh, first and most prominent in the apology itself, there's Meletus, who is, again, an elite Athenian who brings forward the charges and speaks up in response to Socrates in the course of the trial. Meletus is the only one of the three accusers who has a speaking role in the apology. Next, there's Anatus, uh, who is, again, a prominent Athenian and who maybe more so than Meletus is really the, the figure who gets the whole movement against Socrates started. Anatus um, is likely prompted to start the, the process of accusation against Socrates due to Socrates' practice of going around showing up prominent Athenians as lacking the, the expertise that they claim to have. Um, I have in mind when I say this, a pretty dark moment in, that kind of interrupts the action in the dialogue of the Mino. Hmm. Uh, so in the Mino, the topic is the nature of virtue and, and whether virtue is teachable. And there comes a moment uh, in passing where Socrates points out, look, you know, maybe virtue isn't as transferable as you'd think, given that even our very best men, people like Pericles or Themistocles, these great military and political leaders, uh, for all their apparent virtue, they aren't able to pass that on. When they leave behind, the sons that they leave behind, they just don't manage to measure up to the original. Yeah. Um, and Anatus intervenes in, at this moment in the dialogue. It's, it's this, he sort of comes in and he, and he leaves again. Uh, but in this very brief moment, he points out to Socrates, look, if you go around pointing things out like this, you, you'll likely get yourself into trouble. That's, uh, that's kind of the thrust of, of that little exchange they have there. And it, it's just this one detail that seems to come from out of nowhere in the Mino, but it sets up uh, this moment in the apology where Anatus emerges as, as one of the prime movers in the, in the case against Socrates. Mm. So that's Anatus. Yeah. Finally, there's Lycon, the third and the least involved of the three accusers, um, who seems to have been a rhetorician or an orator. Um, so that you have these three men each speaking on behalf of one part of the Athenian populace that Socrates seems to have managed to uh, disgruntle. Uh, <laughs> Anatus on behalf of the craftsmen and the politicians, Meletus on behalf of the poets, and Lycon on behalf of the speechwriters. All of whom, in one way or another, Socrates has shown up as lacking the knowledge they claim to have. Uh, and so these three men coming together, if you like, on behalf of all those that Socrates has, has uh, embarrassed publicly yeah. in the course of his uh, procedure, his procedure of examination. What about general themes? As we read this dialogue, what are the things we should be looking out for? Sure, yeah. Just take a, take a step back then. Socrates himself is the heart of the apology, right? Uh, the way of life that Socrates stands for. Um, and maybe I can step, take a step back even further because the apology itself is, if you like, the epicenter of the Platonic project. I think we talked a little bit about this um, in our first conversation, you know. It's not a bad way to think of whole, the whole of Plato's project and the Platonic corpus in the following terms. How was Socrates possible 
how could Athens have killed him despite the great good that he was to Athens? And how can we get back on track? How can we continue the mission that Socrates had begun in a more successful way? So you can think of in different ways and by developing more and more sophisticated philosophical proposals, all of the Platonic writings as responding to this initial historical event, the, the trial of Socrates and the questions that they brought, that, this, that the trial brought to life uh, in the minds of Socrates' uh, dearest associates. So with that by way of backdrop, the apology itself is putting this man Socrates and who he was and what he lived for at center stage, of course. The idea that we ought to be preoccupied with virtue as a kind of wisdom, a kind of articulate, mature understanding of ourselves and of the good that could actually guide us in the conduct of our lives, that could enable us to speak together to one another, uh, and thereby to guide the decisions that we make individually and in common, so that regardless of how, well, how the rest of life goes, for better or for worse, we will be best positioned to respond to it. That, in general terms, is one way of capturing the great good that Socrates, in the Apology, takes himself to be relentlessly pursuing. So the idea of that pursuit, something that we undertake in common, in conversation. That's what's being portrayed in the apology. Hmm. And in particular, how that pursuit can run into conflict with our common life. You know, this project of self-examination of the pursuit of wisdom, it, it's a purificatory process. We have to expose our ignorance, sometimes in embarrassing ways. And that can also mean sometimes uh, ticking off the wrong people. And so it's not a risk-free pursuit. And again, in the apology, we see the limit case of what that risk-free character can mean. It can mean in some cases, in some limit cases, you know, putting your life on the line. That's what Plato's dramatizing here with an eye to the historical event, of course. Um, but it really prompts the reader and here, listeners, here's a piece of homework, maybe. It prompts the reader to really think, if there is such a thing as a kind of virtue which equips me to guide my life in light of the good, which can enable me to respond well regardless of what hand life deals me, is that the kind of thing that's worth pursuing, not just for myself, but also for those I care about, for those I live in common with? Is that worth pursuing? Yes, even to the point of sacrificing other goods, even potentially all other goods. That's the question that the apology poses in dramatic form. Among the charges brought against Socrates, as you've already said, impiety. He spurns the gods of the city and believes either in new and different divine things or he's an atheist. Socrates denies this and even says that his life, as you said, has been lived in service of the gods. The Oracle at Delphi says Socrates is the wisest man of all, and he sets out to determine the truthfulness of this. This seems fine on the surface, but is this really piety? It seems to me that Socrates doesn't accept the god's claim that he is the wisest of them all, but he questions the god, and he sets out even to refute the god, if possible. Is this not impiety? It's a great question, you know. I, um, I've been struck by it myself when I read the passage. He does, in fact, say 
at least in one moment of uh, his narration, Socrates says, I thought perhaps I could refute the God. He does use that term. Yeah. And if we're concentrating our attention on the idea of refutation, it's really hard for me to say that that's not impious, given Socrates' own commitments. Mm-hmm. Okay? Socrates is, I've always read this moment as Socrates kind of positioning himself in terms of the very traditional Greek idea of hubris. Okay, Socrates is here to put a check on human hubris, meaning in particular the human tendency to pretension to have what only the gods can have. Hmm. And Greek mythology is full of these stories where one or another mortal uh, claims to be able to outdo one of the Olympian gods and without fail, the Olympian god in question comes up, rises to the challenge, outdoes that mortal and then brutally punishes them, okay? (laughs) And Socrates seems to be portraying himself that way. Of course, getting refuted by Socrates isn't nearly as bad as getting turned into a spider like Athena does to Arachne or getting flayed alive like Apollo does to Marcius, uh, but it's still a harsh punishment in response to a human pretension to something that only the gods can have. Hmm. So that's Socrates saying, you mortals, you think you have this kind of wisdom that's the property of the gods I'm going to come to you and I'm going to show you that that's hubris. Hmm. That seems to me to be a good interpretation of how Socrates is using maybe more traditional elements in Greek, uh, in the Greek imagination to defend himself here. But then again, if that's right, there's this moment where he says he's at first, he's thinking he's going to refute the gods, but that seems absurd, right? That seems yeah. absurdly yeah. impious. Uh, given that if the gods are the ones who are uniquely, supremely wise, the last thing you'll be able to do is refute them. If I'm going to speak on Socrates' behalf, (laughs) uh, then I think the best sense I can make of this is that Socrates is speaking now in light of his kind of mature self-understanding of this kind of divine mandate he has, this mission he has for the benefit of Athens, speaking now and looking back. He's looking back on how he first responded to uh, the great puzzle that that message presented to him. Socrates was very confident that he wasn't wise. And so he does first use the language of of puzzlement. You know, what does this possibly mean? Uh, What could be the riddle here? Of course, the Delphic Oracle famously a riddling, a source of riddling messages, right? Um, And yet there is that one lingering use of the term refutation. Um, I think Socrates maybe can, if we were to ask him about this, could admit that when he was first getting started, he had a very imperfect grasp on on, uh, what the import of this message was, but it's in hindsight that he can now say that it's not that the oracle was speaking falsely. After all, Socrates admits there is at least this one limited respect in which Socrates does seem to be wisest. He has self-knowledge of the following form. He knows he lacks the wisdom everyone else around him seems to lay a claim to. Talking about the ignorance of people claiming to have wisdom that they don't. In a few places, Socrates compares the improvement of people to the training of animals. So Socrates is speaking to a man named Callias, the son of Hipponicus. So I asked him, he has two sons. Callias, I said, 
If your sons were colts or calves, we could find and engage a supervisor for them who would make them excel in their proper qualities, some horse breeder or farmer. Now, since they are men, whom do you have in mind to supervise them? And then again, in responding to the jury, he says to Melitus, you condemn me a great misfortune when being accused of corrupting the youth. He says, tell me, does this also apply to horses, do you think, that all men improve them and one individual corrupts them? Or is quite the contrary true? One individual is able to improve them or very few, namely the horse breeders, whereas the majority, if they have horses and use them, corrupt them. Is that not the case, Melitus, both with horses and all other animals? So we have there two instances in which Socrates compares these human beings to the training of animals. What do we make of that? Is, is this just a harmless analogy, or is there something sharper here that Socrates is trying to convey? So I think this is an example of one of the traits of Socrates that comes up in, in many different contexts and, and in different uh, voices. Uh, and it's one of Socrates' more winsome characteristics. It's that when he goes about his business of examining his interlocutors, he always returns to the homeliest examples, examples mm. that any interlocutor or eavesdropper would be able to appreciate, mm. especially analogies to everyday crafts. So you'll, you'll see other characters in the platonic dialogue sometimes report this or sometimes complain about this, that Socrates is always talking about cobblers and leather workers and sculptors, uh, even when he's using these examples to illustrate the loftiest matters, uh, matters of virtue and wisdom and the gods. So I think of this as just one instance of that more general procedure, that general style that Socrates has of explaining matters by recourse to these everyday examples. In particular, Socrates is fond of uh, what uh, scholars have come to call the craft analogy. So Socrates is fond of drawing an analogy between virtue and craft expertise, inasmuch as both seem to be a kind of practical knowledge, it's an accomplishment, it guides action, it's productive, either of some kind of piece of craft work or of action, of course. It's something that at least ideally we would seek to impart from master to apprentice. And so again, this recourse to the language of horse breeding is an instance of that more general uh, policy Socrates has of recourse to the crafts in order to illustrate his preoccupation, which is uh, virtue and wisdom. You can see another example of this in the first book of the Republic where again, Socrates uh, uses the example of horses and, and horse breeding to illustrate points about the nature of justice and its place in human life. Sure. Speaking of horses, Socrates says, I was attached to this city by the god as upon a great and noble horse, which was somewhat sluggish because of its size and needs to be stirred up by a kind of gadfly, end quote. What do we make of that? A gadfly may stir a sleeping horse but I'm not sure it stirs the horse necessarily into positive action. It seems to me that it seems more likely that a fly irritates a horse. So what does this line from Socrates, that he is a gadfly on the horse of Athens, 
What does this tell us, say, about the relationship between the city and the philosopher? Well, Socrates probably has in mind a racehorse, uh, a racehorse who's reluctant to undertake the race once again, uh, (laughs) which in my reading seems to be uh, a trope that's not unique to him. So the lyric poet Ibicus also uses this trope of the tired racehorse that's reluctant to undertake the race again in a very different context. Ibicus is is writing about uh, erotic love, Um, but Socrates here is using that trope to talk about the Athenian people's reluctance to seek wisdom or virtue as the overarching concern that it ought to be for any individual in any political community. But as you say, as you were hinting, the the gadfly may not have that result, right? The gadfly may not encourage the racehorse Uh, no matter how many victories it may have had in its past, to get up again and run the race once more. It might have a very different and undesired result. It might uh, cause the the horse to leap up and break the stall, for example. Um, So I think that regardless of Socrates' own intention in portraying himself in in this rather uh, modest and idiosyncratic way, regardless of his own intention, we can also recognize in that image what I said earlier, that the Socratic style of self-examination is not a risk-free business. It may have the desired result of bringing you and the people you engage in conversation a little further along the path, seeking wisdom, seeking to understand ourselves and our place in the world. But it also might land you somewhere further away from wisdom, or it may land you and your interlocutors in a bit of trouble as it did for Socrates himself. Yeah, Uh, drilling down a little bit on this relationship between the philosopher and the city. This is sort of a clunky way to get at it, but we'll try it. I think I can see how the philosopher needs the city, right? He he needs some semblance of political order uh, to do what he does. He needs peace, he needs leisure, he needs interlocutors. I I suppose the city needs the philosopher because the city needs to determine the ends of the city. Um, this, this, I think, is philosophy. What is the city there for? Um, but the city also needs some things to be settled. Right? The people of the city, uh, they need to agree at least to some significant extent about what is just and what is good, um, at least to enough of an extent to be able to operate with one another. The philosopher seems to be un, um, less comfortable with that. The philosopher needs to question these things, as Socrates does. He wanders around questioning people. Um, So just that tension there. It seems that the city and the philosopher need one another and yet cannot help but be at one another's throats. Yes, yes. Uh, That certainly seems to get to the heart of the matter. I mean, On the one hand, like you said, Socrates or or Plato here seems to portray Socrates and Athens as needing one another or or the philosopher figure and the political community as needing one another, completing each other, if you like. Um, And yet there's the perpetual risk as Socrates end illustrates that one or the other may do damage to their partner here. Yeah. Right. Um, Certainly, that the political community may reject 
architect, the figure of the philosopher, the figure that relentlessly reminds us that we can't take things for granted and that we, we ought to be perpetually seeking wisdom or the truth. But then to flip things around also, uh, that the philosophical figure may jeopardize the kinds of consensus or agreement or set of conventions that make our common life possible. That, that seems to be a recurring and, and as you know very well, you know, a recurring and um, inescapable uh, tension here throughout the, the philosophical and intellectual tradition. Yeah. Um, but I do also think that we shouldn't overrate, I mean, without gainsaying anything that I've said so far, we shouldn't overrate the extent to which the philosopher uniquely is the destabilizing figure here. Um, and maybe I can advert to this particular case again to illustrate my point. Yes, Socrates goes around exposing that the pretensions to wisdom of the Athenian ruling class are just that pretensions. And to that extent, he opens up a rift which may open up a pursuit of virtue and wisdom, but which also may simply give way to tyranny or anomy or some other perilous lack of, of social cohesion. Yet, Socrates isn't doing this in a vacuum uh, where the Athenian norms otherwise would have existed in perfect blissful stability, okay? Socrates' trial is taking place in the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War. Athens has suffered through a pro-Spartan dictatorship, the tyranny of the 30, which uh, gave rise to considerable social unrest, to put it mildly, and uh, a tremendous loss of life for the Athenian people. And if you think of something like the Thucydides account of the Melian debate, where you have Athens portrayed as setting forward a new vision of justice, yeah. right? Not this old Homeric vision of justice, of rendering to each his due, but a more tyrannical vision of justice, uh, real politique, you know, the, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. All of these events are indications that it's not as though Socrates' intervention in the public life of the Athenians was uh, ripping open uh, a kind of portal to chaos that otherwise would never have been opened. Uh, Socrates is making one intervention in a time which is already undergoing tremendous upheaval. And I, I could point also to the differing conceptions of justice, its nature and its, and its demands that we get from other philosophical figures in this time period as well. Uh, the sophists, of course, uh, people like Protagoras and Gorgias also advancing their own innovative conceptions of justice, which to the extent that they uh, won influence could have also led uh, the Athenians in different directions. I, I bring all of this to our attention just to illustrate that yes, the figure of the philosopher, when they do their, their work on behalf of the community brings with them a kind of risk, but it's a risk that to some extent is forever with us. Our, our conventions and our, our consensus about the good and the right is always in jeopardy. Uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't act as though, with the exception of the philosophical figure, these things are untouchable. Um, and so that should make us maybe a little more comfortable with the thought that 
the risk is worth it when we undertake philosophical examination. It's not as if we're safe otherwise. Uh, yeah. We're always at risk. So we may as well take the additional risk of seeking wisdom for ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that makes, makes good sense. Talking about seeking wisdom for ourselves, uh, in the timeline of this dialogue, here's where we are. Socrates has been sentenced, or uh, Meletus has asked for the penalty of death. He has not yet been sentenced. Uh, Socrates has an opportunity, as I understand it, to propose a counter sentence. And as, as you said, he sort of humorously says, okay, how about this? Free meals for life uh, on the public dime. That is uh, not accepted. He also rejects the prospect of exile. And if you'd like to say a word about that, please feel free. He um, flirts with the idea of a relatively small fine, and he says at one point, though, and this immediately comes to our mind, well, just be quiet, Socrates. Just live your life silently. Why can't you do that? And Socrates has an answer. And I'm quoting here. Perhaps some might say, but Socrates, if you leave us, will you not be able to live quietly without talking? Now, this is the most difficult point on which to convince some of you. If I say that it is impossible for me to keep quiet because that means disobeying the God, you will not believe me and will think I'm being ironical. On the other hand, if I say that it is the greatest good for a man to discuss virtue every day and those other things about which you hear me conversing and testing myself and others, for the unexamined life is not worth living for men, you will believe me even less, end quote. I want to ask you two questions about that, Marcus. One, when a man is dying or has been sentenced to death and he has one final piece of wisdom, I think we should listen. And Socrates says, the unexamined life is not worth living. So first question, what does it mean to live an examined life? Very good. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take it away. Um, an examined life. I think we often in the aftermath of 2000 and more years of philosophical activity can tend to forget that for Socrates, the examined life doesn't mean full-time professional academic work at a modern research university. <laughs> what does it mean? It means the continual pursuit through conversation of this articulate understanding of the good and of ourselves and of our place in the world that we can use to guide ourselves in the conduct of our lives. Yeah. That's something that requires no special training. That's something that people from any background can enter into. And that's something which in the best cases, when it's, when it's portrayed most effectively, wears its appeal on its sleeve, at least it seems to me. We can all, I think, feel the grip of these questions. Um, at times we may feel their appeal and their pull a little less because we're distracted as daily life inevitably distracts us with uh, the legitimate pursuit of our particular goals, you know, putting food on the table, pursuing our education in a more conventional sense um, and so on. But we all feel the pull of these human questions. And when we see someone examining them and articulating their best understanding in response to these questions, we can see the appeal of that too. That's the kind of thing Socrates has in mind when he talks about the unexamined life not being fitting for a human being. 
we're, we're thrown into this world, we have these questions, it seems like how our life goes depends in large part on what the truth about these questions are. And therefore, um, whether you've heard from Apollo or not, it seems like an abiding concern uh, to pursue these questions to the extent that our lot in life uh, leaves us the opportunity to do so. Which seems so obvious. It seems so obvious to you, to me, probably to most of our listeners, that a life in which you are not asking those questions is not worth living. And yet, and this is my second question on that passage, Marcus, Socrates says two reasons he can't be quiet. One, because the gods told him he can't be quiet. Two, because the unexamined life isn't worth living. I would imagine most people would say, yeah, little far-fetched that you can't be quiet just because the gods said, don't be quiet. The latter, that the unexamined life is not worth living, seems infinitely more reasonable. And yet, Socrates says, that is the less believable answer. What do, we, what do we do with that? When I read that passage, I have in mind, first of all, what I said just a little while ago about how, although we can feel the pull of those questions about you know, the ultimate horizons of life, about the good and so on, um, sometimes we can fall a bit asleep to them as well, uh, based on sort of the other legitimate in many cases, but the other pursuits and preoccupations we have in life. And I think that Socrates here expresses his skepticism that uh, the jury will take him at his word over that, over the importance of the examined life. He expresses his skepticism about that because he's persuaded uh, based on his experience examining uh, his fellow Athenians that they're too wedded to their, let's say, worldly pursuits. I'm a little uncomfortable with that imagery, but let's, let's put it that way for now at least. They're too ensconced and too attached to their mundane preoccupations to be able to wake up first to the idea that they may lack this wisdom that Socrates is calling them to. They don't yet have it all figured out and that having it figured out is central to how their life goes. Yeah, it occurs to me now, and you'll correct me if, if, if you think this is misguided, that the first of those two options, I can't be quiet because the gods won't let me. That would be more acceptable to the jury because it requires nothing of the jury. Uh, that's Socrates's duty to God. They're not involved in it. The second response that the reason I can't be quiet is because this unexamined life is not worth living is a direct challenge to the jury. Yes. Yes, it seems like a more direct indictment if yeah. Socrates is claiming, look, let's set Apollo aside for a second. The way a human life goes depends on whether or not you've got this wisdom I'm seeking or at least are on the path towards it. Yeah. Um, that immediately sets the, his fellow Athenians up for judgment in a way that the line he takes on the oracle may not. You know, the, the jury could, like, as you were suggesting, they could react to Socrates' story about the Delphic Oracle by saying, okay, fine, Socrates, you're persuaded the Delphic Oracle wants you to do this, but that doesn't mean we have to listen to you. Right. Okay, the Delphic Oracle didn't tell us, listen to Socrates, <laughs> or Athens will suffer a terrible punishment. Um, but this other line about the examined life, it does seem to bring the crosshairs over to the Athenians a little more directly. Yeah. 
And yet the crosshairs are on Socrates. And Socrates does not fear death, or at least does not appear to fear death. It is, in his eyes, either nothing, a dreamless, uninterrupted slumber, or a mere relocation. And to him, this relocation seems like life as usual, if not better. He says, and I quote, I could spend my time testing and examining people there as I do here, end quote. Marcus, that seems too easy to me, right? He's saying, the afterlife is pleasant because it is either nothing, which isn't too bad, or it is the same as this life with better interlocutors. The afterlife is better because it is better. He's begging the question, it seems. Why? This seems like obviously superficial reasoning. Yes. I think this brings us back to one of the features of Socrates here that I find most fascinating and, and puzzling, which is the great confidence he shows in spite of his disavowal of knowledge or wisdom or understanding or expertise. Hmm. Why is Socrates so confident that though he goes to his death and though he does not know what death will consist in, it won't be a bad thing. Not, I think, because he has the clinching philosophical proof that will persuade anyone that listens to him, but rather it's due to the silence of this daimonic sign that's been with him for all of his life. I think that's what really prompts Socrates to voice this, this confident hope, which again, um, maybe prompts us who have a certain potted picture of Socrates and of the philosophical type, prompts us to re-examine at least the figure of Socrates. Uh, we're liable to think of the Socratic examiner as someone who's all questions, who has no stakes and no commitments, and who's a purely paralyzing figure, okay? It's like Mino says that Socrates is kind of like a stingray, you know, you get in his presence and then he numbs you immediately with his questions. But there's more to Socrates than that. Yes, there's, there's the Socratic, there's the moment of refutation. But there's also in the man Socrates himself, this confidence about the the frame within that within which those questions take place. And it's this mission he describes. Again, not a mission he claims to have a kind of understanding or expertise about. It's not that he has fully figured out the divine meaning of his philosophical pursuit, but nonetheless, it seems to be the source of his confidence, right? It's a confidence that enables him to go to his death. Uh, I think it's John Henry Newman who wrote somewhere that no one would die for a mere conclusion. But of course, when we think of martyrs, we think of those who are willing to die for a great conviction. Hmm. Right. And that's, that's the puzzle. That's the tension here in the Socratic figure. He disavows knowledge and yet he has some source of conviction or confidence, which enables him to stick to his guns over this philosophical mission. Uh, even to the point of his death. This is, as the title says, Socrates' apology, the justification of his life. For decades, he has wandered the city shoeless and penniless and questioned people. At the end of all of this, all he knows is that he knows nothing. Is this Socratic way of life, the never-ending, open-ended pursuit of wisdom, desirable? Yes. So think back to what I said about not the self-examined life as the 
figure of the professional academic, but rather as our pursuit individually and together in conversation of this kind of mature articulate understanding of ourselves by which we can guide ourselves in life. If that's what we're talking about, then it seems to me that it's something central. It's one of the central human goods, which we all might participate in to different degrees, to different extents, given the other competing demands on our life and on our time, of course. But again, as I said before, it's something that requires no special training, no particular background, which all human beings in conversation can participate in simply by being human, by being placed in this life with the ability to ask questions and to, and to enter into conversation together. Now that won't usually mean going penniless and shoeless like Socrates, um, but you don't have to devote yourself to the point of penury to it to see that it has great and central significance to human life and, and to accord it some of that significance. And so even if we were to end up penniless and shoeless, it would be worth it. That seems to be what the dialogue challenges us to, uh, to consider. And so uh, for our listeners, again, if you take this up for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time, I, I encourage you to think about whether that central Socratic conceit uh, holds true. You know, is it the case that if wisdom if this articulate understanding is something that genuinely enables us to dispose of everything else in our lives, this kind of practical knowledge, which regardless of what hand life deals us, enables us to play that hand as well as we can. If there is such a thing, and if conversation can enable us to get a little closer to it, is that as valuable as Socrates' own life and death suggests it is. Two questions before we get out of here. One of them from our friend, Dr. Matt Frank, Associate Director of the Madison Program. And he asks us to put ourselves in the jury's shoes. And he asks a very simple question, Marcus. Socrates was actually guilty, wasn't he? I'll say this much. The jury certainly had very good reasons for doing what they did, even if we ultimately think Plato was right. Yeah. And I say that for the following two reasons. Sure. We have to think about the charge of impiety and yeah. the charge of corrupting the youth. First, impiety. There's no denying that Socrates held a kind of revisionist theology. Okay. He was very concerned with speaking rightly about the gods, of doing justice to them in the way we talk about them, what we impute to them. And in particular, to get to the, to the charge of impiety, he was very wary of the traditional stories that portray the gods as being deceitful mm. and as being conflictual, competitive with one another, perpetually disagreeing with one another, and sometimes fighting one another in the pettiest of ways and terms. Socrates seems to have been deeply convinced that all of this was very unworthy of the gods. But we have to remember that these stories and depictions of these stories uh, were very central to Athenian public life, you know, in the religious festivals like the Panathenaica. Um, these conflicts in some cases and these other stories about the gods were portrayed and uh, 
fabric and sculpture and monuments. And so to that extent, Socrates was out of step with aspects of Athenian common life and the theology that was interwoven with that common life. So that's a word about the impiety charge. And second, and maybe more damningly for Socrates, um, even if we think this is ultimately unfair, many of Socrates' associates uh, turned out to be persona non grata for the Athenians, especially in the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War and the tyranny of the 30 that I uh, referenced to earlier, that I referenced earlier. So that's the brief puppet government that the Spartans install in Athens in the aftermath of the war. And uh, this brief tyranny leads to the death, the deaths of many Athenians, confiscations of property, social upheaval on a, on a vast scale. And again, many of the participants in the tyranny were associates of Socrates, in particular, um, Critias, uh, I believe a, a great uncle of Plato's, um, and one of the two leaders of the 30 was an associate of Socrates. And we can also look to, to the infamous uh, Athenian uh, aristocrat and political leader Alcibiades, who himself wasn't a member of the 30, but did have a tremendous fall from grace uh, and ultimately betrayed the people of Athens uh, in the last stages of the Peloponnesian War. He too was a very close associate of Socrates to the point where many Socratic, Socratic dialogues, including two dialogues attributed to Plato, bear Alcibiades' name. So clearly, many of Socrates' central associates and people the Athenians would have had reason to believe Socrates most influenced turned out to be people that were very bad for Athens. And so for those two reasons, it does seem like the Athenians really did have a point um, <laughs> in finding Socrates guilty. I will say on Socrates' behalf, if there's a defense to be made for him, it's that perhaps these men who turned out to be so bad for Athens only became so bad precisely because from Socrates ah. and ceased to be influenced by him. We're running long, so we'll take up that question uh, another time. So, but let me end with one more, Marcus. Uh, you teach philosophy. I know some people are wary of this label being applied to them, but you seem to me to be a philosopher. What does this dialogue mean to you? Some people get into philosophy in college. Maybe they have a great philosophy professor or they take an intro class where they read something that really sparked their philosophical imagination. For me, I've, I began to fall in love with philosophy through Plato and in particular through the Apology and the Republic. So for me, the Apology is very central to how it is that I, I came to love philosophy and everything that I do as a result of pursuing that interest. So for me, the Apology is, is a very personal uh, piece of reading. As for what it means for me, I'd simply point us back to that basic humanistic idea that um, you don't have to be a full-time professional and you don't have to be a beggar on the street corner to get the value, get the good that Socrates was urging his contemporaries towards. Uh, that this is something that we can all participate in to some extent or another. And to the extent that we do, it's something that can ennoble and enrich our lives. This is something that belongs to all of us. And it's something that we can all enter into in conversation together.
Well, Marcus, thank you so much for coming back on the show today uh, to help all of us in, in this pursuit of, of knowledge and in this conversation. Our guest today has been Marcus Gibson. We have been discussing the Apology of Socrates by Plato. Marcus, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure, Nina. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. Marcus Gibson on Plato's Apology of Socrates, the first of our deep dives into select platonic dialogues. If you missed our introduction to the series, go back and listen to episode 22 on reading Plato. And if you'd like to read along with us, we're working from the complete works of Plato edited by John Cooper. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as Marcus and I did. It's a different sort of episode than we usually do. So if you have any feedback or suggestions, you can email me at ascalia, that's A-S-C-A-L-I-A, at princeton.edu. We look forward to having you with us on this journey through the dialogues. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.